0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, February the 28th, 2023, the last day in February. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco. A few months ago, we did a show about FDR with the... Journalist Jonathan Darman uh, has a wonderful new book out, Becoming FDR, The Personal Crisis That Made a President, that presents FDR as a kind of unlikely hero, a man that through the quirks and tragedies of history was made into a great man. Maybe he wasn't quite born as one. But of course, one of the problems with viewing the 1930s is overdoing the FDR element. He was enormously important, but he couldn't have done the New Deal. He couldn't have, quote-unquote, saved America on his own. Uh, He was a remarkable man, but not that remarkable. Uh, And there were others around him who were also, so to speak, unlikely heroes. Four of them are the subject of our show today. These are the four characters who served uh, Roosevelt most thoroughly through his um, four presidencies, Harold Ikes, uh, Francis Perkins, Har- Harry Lloyd, uh, sorry, Harry Hopkins, and Henry Wallace. Together, they comprise uh, four unlikely heroes, at least according uh, to my guest today, Derek Liebart, who has a new book out, Unlikely Heroes, Franklin Roosevelt his four lieutenants and the world they made. Derek is joining us from Washington DC. Um, Derek, congratulations, the book is out today. Um, was Were the four, four, what you call the four lieutenants, uh, these unlikely heroes? Were they as unlikely a, a hero as FDR himself? Uh, was he the, the fifth unlikely hero? Indeed, he was.
1: And by no coincidence, each of these four were as grievously crippled, to use a term of the day, as was the president himself. His wife, Eleanor, said that he was only comfortable around outcasts. And indeed, each of these four, if not an actual outcast, was an outsider. From American politics, and each of these four, in their own way, was as grievously wounded as was the president.
0: It's odd about FDR. I mean, we're going to come on to your your unlikely heroes, but FDR was, of course, the cousin of Teddy Roosevelt. He was a scion of one of America's leading uh, families, a wealthy man, um, educated at all the best places. Had he not? experienced polio, um, Derek, had he not been disabled, crippled, would he have had a more conventional career or perhaps a less conventional career? Do you agree with Darman that uh, that he only really became FDR uh, during his, uh, uh, his uh, horrible experience with polio?
1: It wasn't just the polio that knocked him flat in 1921, recall it was the disruption of his marriage in 1919, 1920, when Eleanor found that he had betrayed her and when he had offered her a divorce. That whammy in conjunction, historians argue, helped transform FDR. But so many of his characteristics, the good ones and the bad ones, can be seen well before the polio, well before the infidelity. There was a depth of anger in FDR, which historians have overlooked. And that didn't just arrive from the polio. In the 1920s, he indeed did feel bitter towards so many of his peers who were partners of the House of Morgan and white shoe law firms, whereas he was doing penny stock scams at Roosevelt and O'Connor. And it was regarded that he was a man of wealth, except basically all the money was controlled by his mother. So there was a lot about FDR that was like a Edith Wharton novel of a glittering New York, but all kinds of complexities behind it.
0: In that sense, I guess he was, I wouldn't say a typical uh, aristocrat, but certainly not an unusual one in that all his wealth was tied up with his mom. Um, and of course, maybe we'll come to this later in the conversation. I want to get to your four lieutenants. I mean, Eleanor is the the sixth member of the troop. Uh, maybe we'll talk about her later. But let's focus on uh, the four people in your book, Ikes, Perkins, um, Hopkins, and Wallace. Um, is there one, Derek, who is the most unlikely hero of this quartet?
1: It could very well be Harold who had regarded himself in 1933 when he was brought into government as a complete loser and a failure. He was a small town, small time lawyer in Chicago. He'd been a longtime progressive. He was a Republican. But for our purposes, he suffered grievously from bipolar disease. There were days when he literally could not speak. He medicated himself constantly with barbiturates and whiskey. This appealed to FDR, these vulnerabilities. FDR was unsurpassed in detecting an individual's talents, as well as his or her vulnerabilities. And he would enable them to soar. He would draw them close, and he would enable such unfortunates to soar. Harold Ickes, as Interior Secretary, was the most powerful figure in FDR's administration from start to finish, because it wasn't just Interior Secretary. He had at least 16 more roles and titles controlling all of energy during World War II. He was also known as the Secretary of Negro Affairs, quote unquote, because of his championship of civil rights and banging his head against segregation and lynching in trying to change the nation and indeed opposing FDR flat out on the internment of Japanese Americans during the war. So Harold Ickes was the strongest official like a chancellor, really, of FDR's presidency from beginning to end.
0: You, the, the the four were in charge of the key government departments: agriculture, labor, interior, and the treasury. Um, Frances Perkins, of course, was the first I think first female um, cabinet secretary in American history. Um, so much of the headlines goes around her gender, but I I don't think Derek, that's really doing justice to Perkins, is it?
1: Perkins was a phenomenon of nature. She was desperately shy, terribly private. Indeed, her husband was institutionalized for bipolar disease as well, most likely, and her daughter was schizophrenic. Frances had reinvented herself as a Boston Brahmin from humble origins. And she had made her way into New York and Boston society. She was a tireless progressive campaigner, fighting child labor, fighting for better working conditions. And she had known FDR since before the polio, when she described him as a god king of an athlete, and he trusted her entirely, and indeed Francis was the core of the programs the known as the New Deal.
0: Was Francis, in a sense, the the reinvention of the progressivist tradition in American political life and political philosophy, or was there something new about? Uh, the new deal that that, the Perkins helped implement?
1: Well, she made it real. So it went beyond so much of the theorizing and good intentions of previous decades. And she was able to turn Social Security, workers' rights, minimum wage, she was able to turn that into law very often, despite FDR. He did not support her in social security. He did not support her in building a labor relations board. And it was Frances so often who was out there by herself, or perhaps working in tandem with one of the other three, a Harold Ickes or a Henry Wallace, in actually building the institutions and creating the legislation of the New Deal.
0: Um, DEREK, during the the last Great Recession in 2008, 2009, uh, under, um, when Obama came to power, I, I can't remember, someone in his administration suggested that one should never waste the Great Crisis. Um, and of course, Obama tried to at least rebuild some aspects of the New Deal, arguably. Did these characters, in particular Perkins uh, and Ikes, did they understand the opportunity given the Great Crash and the consequent economic crisis uh, that this was their opportunity to imprint their ideas on an America that would never—they would never have the opportunity again, given the depth of the crisis?
1: Utterly, utterly, that was understood by all because it wasn't just the worst economic crisis that America had faced. The United States had gone through numerous roller coaster topsy-turvy financial crises. That's part of our nature. And this, however, was unprecedented. It was a time when the West looked to be heading toward totalitarianism, fascism, communism, collectivism, syndicalism. And America arguably was on the brink. There were violent extremist movements on the left and the right. No one had any illusions, FDR, nor these four, nor many on Capitol Hill, about how close to the precipice America was in losing its democracy.
0: Let's talk about Hopkins, the third in your quartet. It seems to me that he had the most complicated relationship with FDR. He was, would it be fair to say that he was perhaps the most normal of, of this quartet or, or maybe Wallace, but certainly he might be seen in some ways as a rival to FDR?
1: No, no, FDR would not, Brooke any rivalry from anyone. And Henry Wallace made that very clear when he had even thought about running for president had FDR not run for an unprecedented third term in 1940. FDR would eviscerate anyone who he even thought might be a rival. What he did with Harry Hopkins was indeed what he did with the others. He would raise them up, draw them close, and they would be instruments of his own end. Harry Hopkins was physically crippled. He was racked with ulcers, but then in 1937, he had three quarters of his stomach removed for stomach cancer. Now that might be crippled enough, but Harry was shrewd and Harry realized that the more infirm he became, the closer he could be drawn to FDR. And Harry abused his body phenomenally, drinking usually, which would get him back into the Naval Hospital time and time again. And his colleagues said that whenever Harry was pulling out and feeling well, he would turn to drinking, he would flush his medicine, and his nutrients down the drain, and always live on the edge of collapse. But this brought him closer to FDR, and the press styled Harry Hopkins as FDR's number one advisor by 1939, and indeed the closest that any official has been to a president on political military matters.
0: And then the fourth in the quartet is uh, Henry Wallace. Um, He was traditionally the most left wing of of these four, wasn't he?
1: Ah, no, that's what is often thought.
0: Harold Ickes
1: was an outright radical. He was a Republican, but he was an outright radical on most any issue we could think of. Bank nationalization civil rights, smashing segregation, Harold Ickes would have been the fiercest of the left-wingers. And indeed, Wallace regarded Harold Ickes as as a true left-winger around whom other left-wingers gather. So many myths surround Franklin Roosevelt's presidency. I would argue that more myths surround this presidency, and indeed Roosevelt himself, than any other presidency, miss big and small, how the New Deal was created and implemented, how FDR stood or did not against the anti-lynching bills. In foreign affairs, there's the notion that he had a friendship with Churchill, which is completely strange, given that FDR, according to his closest, closest friend, Missy LeHand, was incapable of friendship. There is a notion as well that there was no alternative to allowing Stalin to dominate Eastern Europe by 43 and 45. Big myths, small myths, they all weigh down our research on FDR's presidency. In a nutshell, Harold Ickes, the most assertive, strongest figure at the very top from beginning to end, would, by our lights, be the most radical. Henry Wallace, in contrast, ran the biggest government department, which in the 1930s was agriculture, agriculture, which is often forgotten. But Henry Henry Wallace, too, was a, a terribly injured human being. The great historian, Arthur Schlesinger, who knew Wallace, wrote about an emptiness at the core of Henry Wallace. The New York Times described Wallace's intellect as freakish. Wallace spoke as an equal with Einstein and with John Maynard Keynes. It was an intellect that was so freakish that it often alienated him from those around him, even his children and it also, because of that strange flawed wounded personality and brilliant intellect, it was a natural to make him a match for FDR who again like the other three brought him close, raised him up and he used him for his own
0: ends. Derek, you mentioned Churchill and Stalin. Um, I mean, obviously, FDR wasn't Stalin, it goes without saying, but it sounds to me from your presentation and certainly the way he built these relationships with profoundly flawed characters or injured characters, unlikely heroes like himself, that he had Stalin's quality in guaranteeing. Loyalty. I mean, of course he didn't have the death camps to threaten them with if they weren't loyal. But it seems like he was a little bit more like Stalin as a personality, as a as a political manipulator than than Churchill, who who was always an outsider and never had that kind of political loyalty.
1: In contrast to FDR, Churchill was a warm, outgoing individual, complicated as he was but with a range of friendships, as you said, also a range of party affiliations as he went back and forth. FDR was a far, far colder, manipulative figure. Stalin, however, was an outright psychopath. (laughs) and FDR, to his eternal discredit, had the conceit of believing that he could get at stalin meaning manipulate stalin as he did so many big city political bosses in the u.s he believed that he could manipulate churchill too and in many ways he did but there was a less favorable balance of power for churchill with stalin he all too often deceived himself and believed that Stalin was someone who could be negotiated with, who was not a Marxist-Leninist, who would see the value of a democratic Poland or democratic Baltic republics, all of which was delusional.
0: Let's put these four together. They are individually important, but as you suggest, they are also a collection of, of important figures, uh, his four lieutenants and the world they made. What kind of world did these four characters make, Derek? What, what was their achievement in, in the 30s and 40s? I would argue that during the 30s, under FDR's
1: eagle eyes, of course, they saved democracy in the United States. Certainly in 1933, when democracy was threatened from the left and from the right, all of them had that fear of violent conflict within America in 1933. When there were violent agricultural movements, there was much talk, if less evidence, about right-wing military coups. Not only in 1933, but FDR certainly feared violent extremism in 1940, from the right this time, after re-election to a third term. So all of them helped America endure the Great Depression, quell the incipient violence, and then come World War II, all of them, along with a military foursome the chiefs of staff the commanders marshall admiral king general arnold admiral leahy the military counterpart of our 4 during the war they outright saved civilization the american role was pivotal to world war ii victory so the world they made was saving democracy during the 30s and then saving civilization during World
0: War II. Is there a third piece of this in terms of their combination in creating a stronger state, the infrastructure of the, the New Deal state that of course lasted up until Reagan, now has been unpicked by the last 40 or 50 years of neoliberalism. Can, can one conclude that, that the, the four of them, and obviously with, uh, with FDR as well, constructed a new American state?
1: Here's one of my favorite insights on the significance of these dozen years. When all of them came to office in March 1933, under the old constitutional calendar, 90 years ago, when they came to office, the common description of our nation was these United States of America. It was always these United States one would refer to the country. By 1945, when America was triumphant, that term changed. Forever thereafter, it has been the United States, removed from the romantic old vision of these United States to the United States as a united strong presence in the world. To be sure, government expanded, although it was still very smart, small, by uh, current standards. But government took a role that previously had not been understood, that it would be responsible for protecting its citizens in peacetime as during war. And indeed, the New Deal still lives with us, whether it's social security, workers' rights, what have you. That shapes our lives as well.
0: Many people, perhaps including yourself, Derek, are nostalgic for that world in our post, perhaps post-neoliberal world, certainly a world where much of the Many of the achievements of the New Deal, if you want to call them achievements, have been unpicked. We had Michael Tomaski, the editor of The New Republic, uh, on the show recently uh, talking about how Joe Biden and his embrace in, in, in Tomaski's view of progressive economics could be the next FDR. Um, should we be looking back at this period and these unlikely heroes as models for
1: no. contemporary no. heroes? And your skepticism, Andrew, is spot on. When we talk about reviving the New Deal or the heroism of that era, when we point to FDR, we are implicitly asking for a return to a time of big men, of such titanic leadership. That inherently is not American, looking for heroes to guide us out of the morass, ideally in our democracy, we can do that ourselves rather than under the heavy hand of an FDR. To be sure, there's room for an administrative state, for the role of government, and especially in emergency as we just saw during COVID with the immediate actions of the Federal Reserve. But when we talk about, oh, let's return to the New Deal or to an FDR presidency, it's a very heavy hand that often skirts civil liberties, which is the underside of the New Deal that is often forgotten.
0: Derek, one way that we might be a little nostalgic for this period, is the relationship between the press, the media, and these politicians. Of course, everybody knows the story that nobody reported on FDR's uh, disabilities, but these kind of characters, if you've noted, they're all profoundly flawed. Uh, Ike's was was a depressive, uh, Hopkins was an alcoholic. These men wore wore their... Deformities, if that's the right word, uh, on their sleeves. Um, presumably, the press knew all about th- these flaws in these characters. Could they exist today? I mean, Ike's, of course, had a son I think who worked in the in the Clinton presidency. Yeah. But the senior figures in a Biden presidency or a Trump presidency could they be bipolar? Could they be alcoholics and get away with it in today's media? Well. Remember that each of these four as FDR himself,
1: what made them heroic was that they were able to triumph and function so spectacularly, despite their wounds, they were able to overcome. FDR's favorite poem was Rudyard Kipling's If. And if suggests that life is a continuous test of endurance. And what made FDR and the four outcasts whom he drew close, what made them heroic is that nonetheless they were able to accomplish so much. Would the press today expose disease and personal failings? For sure. But would one's ability to vastly compensate, perhaps overshadow such news? Who knows? But yeah, it was a different era with a different relationship with the press and also with phenomenal concentrations of power in Washington for the first time. Government of that era could get things done bang because there were fewer, fewer countervailing forces. For example, the Lincoln Tunnel under the Hudson was built in three years and everyone thought that was slow. The current tunnel that's being built under the Hudson for trains is not going to be ready until 2038. In those days, with fewer regulations, fewer concerns about externalities like environment, for better or for worse, government could get things done fast. And these four, as well as their president, made government work.
0: So is there a lesson? I mean, as I think I agree with you, I think it's always too easy to be nostalgic for the New Deal. Is the lesson that great men are always, great men and great women are always profoundly flawed, and that the way in which the media turned a a JFK or a Reagan into Hollywood-style figures is itself deeply problematic?
1: Great leaders in democracy Great leaders don't have to be nice. Uh, In a democracy, however, they have to have a rapport with the rest of us. They might not be nice. They get things done. One can still be a great leader, and FDR is Exhibit A here, and a, a tortured human being. And it's that depth of FDR's tortured soul that historians have by and large overlooked. And historians have overlooked the basics of this administration to understand how FDR led from the beginning 90 years ago in 1933, right up until the end. That's why I argue that so many myths becloud cloud an understanding of Franklin Roosevelt's presidency.
0: Let's end, uh, Derek, with Eleanor. Um, Could she have been the fifth lieutenant? I mean, some people see her as the perpetual vice president. Others see her as someone who was a a victim of FDR. How does Eleanor fit into all this?
1: Eleanor was the foremost champion in the nation of civil rights, workers' rights, indeed turning it into a, a mythical cause. But she was the president's wife, ultimately. She did not run any of the great institutions like Frances Perkins. She was very much a, a figurehead and an exemplar of what we could be. She was the child of an alcoholic. She appealed to Franklin very early on after he graduated from Harvard, she was extraordinarily beautiful uh, as a young woman, which is often forgotten when others speak of this mismatch between Franklin and Eleanor.
0: And her her beauty was sophisticated, subtle, it wasn't. it,
1: it, It was, it was exactly the type of beauty that he enjoyed. Five foot 11, horsey, blonde with long flowing curls. It was a sophisticated beauty, and FDR himself was uh, sophisticated. In it was an
0: aristocratic beauty rather than a Hollywood one.
1: <laughs> it was a town and country type of beauty rather than a Kardashian type of beauty. Uh, Eleanor you know, overcame so much misery and desperation herself, and like Frances Perkins, she was disappointed in her men, and she gave herself a wider uh, boundary of choice in the partnerships she developed with other women, as did Francis. And despite all that Eleanor had endured, to be sure, she became a, an inspiring figure of the nation.
0: Derek, finally, um, it seems to me that America may not be missing Joe DiMaggio, but they're missing men and women of this complexity and ability. The great Americans don't go into politics anymore. The the Ikeys, the Perkins, the Hopkins, the Wallaces, they go into tech, Uh, they may go into entertainment. How are we gonna get the best Americans, the most flawed, the most tragic, the most brilliant Americans back into politics?
1: That's a fascinating question, Andrew. One possibility is that it might come with extreme emergency. America shows its best during extreme emergency, not a mere financial crisis, but a trauma as dramatic as the 1930s, let alone World War II. We clear the deck and extraordinary talents can arise and the old guard is pushed aside. I mean, God forbid that we encounter such extremity again, but in the freewheeling carnival-like America, that seems to be the only concern that does bring such extraordinary personalities to the fore in politics.